to podcast 14, 15, I'm not sure. But today we've got a really big one. We've got verbal behavior. This one is going to be a few parts. I don't know how many. I'm just going to take my sweet time going through this. Um, it's going to be multiple series here. We're going to be talking about verbal behavior, the science of it, how to understand it, how to tell the difference between the different operands, what they all are, how to remember them, how to apply them into the real life, what do you need to know for the exam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of information. If you guys um, went to Ball State, I know for sure. You probably had to read Skinner's verbal behavior book about it, and there's an entire book dedicated to this, so it's going to be a lot to squeeze into a couple podcasts. But I do want to give it to do justice in time because it's such a foundation of ABA and all of our assessment tools that we use and what we do day in and day out. If you can understand verbal behavior, you can understand ABA. There's no doubt in my mind. It's so complex. It's so hard. But I am here to make it easy for you. This is your channel, Your ABA Help. I am Sarah, BCBA, and I'm here to solve your ABA problems. And today that problem is verbal behavior. I'm not gonna lie guys, I've definitely been avoiding this one because I knew it would take a lot of time to like write out and structure and figure out how to give this information and making sure I'm right and like it's an entire chapter of Cooper that I've just been kind of going through and pulling my different resources, reading, you know, brushing up on my Skinner Verbal Behavior book. It's a lot of information so we are going to be going through this together and I'm here to just make it easier for you guys to digest. Skinner's a complex man with a lot of big words. Before we get into that real quick, I just want to remind you, I have my Patreon. It is $5 mock. Uh, there is mini mock on there. There is a Tesla's A, Tesla's B mocks on there. There's flashcards I've uploaded as well for Tesla's A, B, and C. And whenever you guys join into my Patreon, I will send you a message. <laughs> I hope I've sent a message to all of you guys that have joined already. Just saying, hey, if you need anything, I am happy to help you. If you have a question and you're just like, I cannot understand this term, I'm happy to answer it for you or make any materials you guys are needing. We're almost to our first round of 20 people who have joined my Patreon, which means in my Patreon, I'll be giving you guys out a link on whether it's Zoom or Google Meet or whatever. I'll figure out the best platform for that. I'll be giving out a link so we can have a one hour study session whenever I meet that 20. It'll be just that following Saturday. I'll try to give you guys a week's notice. I know you know, scheduling and making time for that can be really tough. It will be recorded as well, so if you can't make it to that study session, but you want to like talk about the concepts that we're covering or learn about them, it'll be recorded and put on to my Patreon as well. Today for verbal behavior, we are going to be talking about the science, the terms, the concepts you need to understand for the exam. We're going to stay away from the like, real life application type stuff. We are just going to really focus in on what is verbal behavior? What is it not? What do you need to know? The science part of it, what's point-to-point -point correspondence, things like that is where we are going to focus today. We're going to see how far we're going to get. I'm going to give this podcast a maximum of an hour and then I'm going to follow up next week with our part two. If we need a part three, we'll do part three. I will try to get all done in part two so that we're not spending too much time on it. But if you guys want in the future for me to cover more information on this, please let me know. It's a big one so you know there's gonna be things i'm gonna leave out i'm trying to do everything that's in cooper though that is my goal so first off why do we care about verbal behavior what what's the purpose of it why do we do it in aba why does skinner do it verbal behavior gives us a measurable operational way to define language and communication and that learning that happens through our verbal behavior skinner gives us a way to take you know 
something kind of mysterious and put a science to it and experiments and figure out how to scientifically manipulate, you know, do ABA to those variables communication to improve those that we serve with lives. And I'm going to say it in the beginning, so I'll say it again. Communication is the absolute most important thing about any ABA program, protocol, getting a person to the point where they can communicate their basic needs is a human right. Like we all deserve to be able to say, I want water, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. Whether that's a point, look, icon, button, whatever it is, it's the most important thing. We need to be able to speak up for ourselves, whether it's getting out, working out, doing things we want, or just saying, I don't like that. We all have that right. So making sure we have communication, understanding verbal behavior and communication is such a hallmark of ABA and it's so important. With that, I do wanna say, I know I've harped on this before, we are not SLPs. So there's a lot of speech paths that do not like ABA because of verbal behavior and prompting, but because of verbal behavior, there's some BCAs out there that feel that they can do what a speech path does. They have the same qualifications. They can do speech. They can teach a kid to, you know, to communicate. They don't, they don't need a speech path. They're good. I strongly, strongly disagree with that. And I highly recommend coordinating with the speech path, whether that's just, you know, consulting with them for an hour here and there and getting their insights on cases or having them be the speech path with that client, meeting in the middle, whatever it is making sure we're working with speech paths, because while verbal behavior is a big component of language development and communication skills, it is nothing compared to everything that a you know, speech path scope is. They have, they have you know, a master's degree in their own hours, their own certifications, their own qualifications. It would be like a speech path coming and saying, I read a chapter out of Cooper, so therefore I'm a VCBA. It's such a small component that we can do in the speech world, and it's such a small component they, they would be able to do if they did that. First up, what's verbal behavior? What is it? What is it not? A verbal response can take form in speech, sign, AAC, alternative, augmentative communication devices, sign language, pointing, icon exchanges. It could be body language, annotation, eye contact, finger spelling, braille, any sort of communication that has a speaker and listener relationship that we'll talk about in a minute is going to be communication. It doesn't have to be vocal or nonverbal communication. Like I said, it could be body language. Skinner goes as far as to say that any awkward behavior could acquire the verbal behavior function. Any awkward behavior can be communication depending on these contingencies. So starting off, we are concerned about the form and the function of verbal behavior just like we are any other behavior. So Skinner said you know, verbal behavior is awkward behavior. So we're looking at antecedent behavior and consequence contingencies. It's all awkward behavior. So same thing with verbal behavior. We are looking at the form of it, the, the topography, and we're also looking at the function, why they're doing it. What are those contingencies in place and why they're communicating? I was saying it's much more complex, but when we are talking about verbal behavior, the foundation of it, that's where we start. So there's some terms you're gonna need to understand in order to kind of understand what is and isn't verbal behavior. First one is a speaker. So the speaker is kind of the primary person of verbal behavior that Skinner really focuses on his book. And then Cooper, we're talking about the speaker. Listener is just as important, but the speaker is kind of the foundation, that start of that verbal behavior. If you are using verbal behavior in any form, you are the speaker. And then the listener, the other person, is going to be the other half of that communication bubble there. The listener serves three purposes. Listener serves as 
the audience, the one providing reinforcement or a consequence, depending on the communication or the verbal behavior from, and the listener also responds to the speaker's verbal behavior in particular ways. So understand that the listener and speaker role is constantly changing. So it's not like I'm the speaker in this conversation and that's that. It's every single verbal behavior episode and that's what it's kind of called it. So think about like I'm A, my listener is B. A to B is one verbal behavior episode. And then if I'm asking that person a question and then they respond, the roles have now switched. They are now a speaker and now I'm a listener. I'm serving as the audience. I'm serving as the one providing reinforcement and then providing a reaction based on whatever the communication was. And depending on that conversation, it could go back and forth. It could turn into just one-sided conversation. We'll talk about what that looks like in a minute. But just understand that verbal behavior episode is like the smallest unit. Think of it like a response. That A, that B is that verbal behavior episode. The listener can also provide nonverbal behavior. We're talking about with the verbal offerings, like listener discrimination is still a verbal offering. We'll talk about those in a minute. But just know the listener can also respond in a nonverbal way. What that would look like is if I was the speaker, so I'll think about letter A here, I'm the speaker, and I say, hey, could you pass me the salt? You're the listener, you're the audience, you're providing reinforcement, you're providing the consequence or the action, which would hopefully be handing me the salt. You responded to that listener discrimination skill, and I now have the salt. My behavior has been reinforced. The most basic form of communication right there. And then I might say, thanks. And you might say, you're welcome. And now I have a verbal response back. That doesn't have to happen. It can be purely nonverbal. Like somebody could just wave to you and walk away. That's communication, right? I'm going to give you a direct quote from Cooper that I want to just kind of break down to you. I feel like if we can understand this statement, understand what Cooper's talking about here, when he gets all big and fancy with his words, you can understand these concepts here. So I think this is going to kind of tie together to understand how motivation and how our communication and what Skinner is really trying to drive home is how our communication can impact other people's behaviors. And that's why speech and communication is so important when you're looking at every single interaction whether it's your client or yourself or whatever, to understand how each of these units work. If a speaker, if I'm a speaker and I say, hey, don't go to Bill's restaurant, it's horrible. There's gonna be a stimulus equivalence that emerges. So emergent stimulus response is what Skinner talks about. That's gonna emerge from me saying that. And that's gonna be that impact of my verbal behavior on the listener. So that's you, I'm saying, hey, don't go to Bill's restaurant, it's horrible. You have now thought, oh man, I, I hate Bill's restaurant now, just like I hate John's restaurant. You've created maybe that symmetry in your brain or maybe a category or a new concept of restaurants you hate or restaurants that are green that you hate. It could be all different things. Everybody's brain works a little bit differently and how that's gonna merge. But I have now impacted your behavior with my verbal statement. So I have evoked a new behavior from you when you interact with Bill's restaurant, assuming that you take my advice and you listen to don't go Bill's restaurant, it's horrible. I've evoked a new behavior from you. So I have an evocative effect on your behavior of avoiding Bill's restaurant. Okay. To review the statement that Skinner talks about here, he says, Hey, don't go to Bill's restaurant. It's horrible. Oh my gosh. Moved it. Ugh. Hey, don't go to Bill's restaurant, it's horrible. We have a new emergent relation that has developed, that has an evocative effect on your behavior. And this is where Skinner gets real science here about how 
our interactions with others can you know, change our MOs and change our behavior. And then it took me a minute to figure out why the relationship is evocative because it increases the frequency of behaviors. So it seems like my saying, hey, don't go to Bill's restaurant would be a beta. But it's evocative because I'm increasing your frequency of avoidance behaviors is kind of what I drew up from that. This is directly from Cooper, so don't come for me. But when you're looking at these complex statements that Skinner starts to say about verbal behavior, when you're reading your exam questions about this, try to break it down. So when I said that complex sentence about Bill's restaurant, what's happening there? What's happening that speaker to that listener relationship? How is my relationship to you changing your behavior? What is changing? Is it your behavior? Is it your MO? Is the frequency going up and down? Is there avoidance now? Like really looking at and breaking down, breaking down exactly what's happening. A big point I want to make is do not, under any circumstance, make assumptions here. Skinner is not a party guy. I assume he, he there's no jokes here. Do not assume that now that I've said that statement, that person's not going to go to Bill's restaurant, so it's going to have that impact. You need the proof that says this happened, so that happened. You need to know for sure when you're looking at like man's that the MO is there. Don't assume the kid wants the cookie when you're looking at a man and you know trying to figure out the man versus attack. No assumptions here. You have to be very cut and dry verbal behavior. So good luck. And that's what can make it really hard is you have to really slow down and break these things down and figure out each individual term. And you don't need to. I don't recommend it. <laughs> if you have to for school. Best of luck to you. Another key point I wanted to make, a speaker can also be a listener. That's the one exam question that I was put on with my mock exam because people always get tripped up on this because it doesn't seem like it. I'm a speaker, you're a listener. Skinner makes it very clear that verbal behavior is still happening and I can engage as my own listener. So I'm gonna give you some examples. So if I'm talking to myself and I'm saying, oh, I need to do the laundry, that's verbal behavior. I'm talking about my MO, I'm identifying what I need to do, or if I'm you know, trying to work through a problem, or it could be like one, two, three, four, it could be verbal behavior, it could be a listener there. If I'm telling myself to you know, do something like go do the laundry, or if I say like, oh, all right, I'm gonna tie my shoe now, and you're just talking out loud. It could also be private events in your head, so if you're thinking that is verbal behavior, we don't need to see it. You're having those interactions in your head, you know, the listener yourself is going to reinforce, it's going to be your own audience, and there's going to be certain ways that you react to your own verbal behavior. People might overhear your verbal behavior, but that doesn't matter unless they start to come into that interaction and impact your behavior by providing an audience, reinforcement, or consequences, or some sort of reaction based on what you say. You got it. Also, another quick little note I'm going to throw in here before we move on. Talking, verbal behavior, whether it's, you know, actual verbal communication, icons, pointing, you know, eye contact, those are all behavior cusps. But like the skill of being a listener would be a pivotal behavior because it's something that you are going to practice. It's not going to get you to new environments and new situations like a speaker and being able to communicate in so many different contingencies and environments and new situations and try all these different new skills. Pivotal behavior is going to improve prove certain things in your life and you're going to generalize those skills to you know unlearn situations you know you don't need to like learn how to listen to everybody and listen to every word that comes out of everybody's mouth or every sign or every you know, point you don't need to learn that that point means this that point means that you can generalize 
and that's that pivotal behavior. Okay, the next thing, I'm gonna talk about the form and function of behavior. This is kind of where the form part comes in. So we're gonna talk about the functions later, like the purpose, the whys, the MOs, SDs, all of that. When we're talking about form, this is what we're talking about. We have topography-based verbal behavior, and we have selection-based verbal behavior. So topography-based verbal behavior, we know what that is. We know what topography is at this point. If you guys have been listening, you know. Topography-based verbal behavior is the form that the verbal behavior is taking on. So whether that is my mouth shapes, making certain words, my various signs in ASL that I can do, or my point, whatever form that communication takes on, is going to be the topography, that physical feature, right? We know these basic keywords. So I spent so much time teaching you guys earlier. So that way when we come to these new concepts, we don't have to learn what a topography-based verbal behavior is by definition. We can apply our keyword knowledge. Look at that, you already know what it is. This is important because the way our communication is going to get reinforced is going to be dependent on the topography, right? So if I, you know, say cookie, I'm gonna get a cookie book. I say donut, I'm gonna get a donut. Same thing for signs, same thing if I point to a cookie, I'm gonna get that cookie. If I point to a donut, I'm gonna get that donut, but if it gets reinforced incorrectly, that's gonna impact my verbal behavior. Same thing for selection-based verbal behavior. Lean on that word selection. You're selecting your verbal behavior. This is icons, AAC devices. It's gonna be, if you have an array of three different options and you're selecting that's communicating, you have various options to choose from. That's going to be selection-based communication for behavior. And like I said a little bit earlier for the exam, you're going to want to know how to fine tooth these you know, complex sentences and speaker listener relationships, understand MOs and SDs. You're going to want to be able to comb through those and just slow down and break those down. That's what we're really going to work on here. For real life, not so much. For real life, you just need to understand how to use your assessment tools and implement them and figure out the deficits, you know, skills deficit, performance deficits that your, your clients have and figuring out what can help them. So like a lot of us have been in this field for a minute, we know what a man looks like. We understand. We don't need to know the point which correspondence or formal similarity. We can spot it and we know it. It's when you're gonna start to take those moments to figure out, okay, do they need more text in their vocabulary or do they need more mans? And you can kind of sit back and look, we might pull a little bit of this. You're not going to pull all of it every single time. Don't try to apply this stuff on your life. Just learn it, implement it, follow your guide on these. Let's talk a little bit about the elementary verbal operands. We're gonna talk about what they are and how to tell them apart. I'm gonna make this really cool graphic for you guys that has everything that you need to know about the verbal operands, MOs, SDs, which one goes where and how for my visual learners. That is going to be on my Patreon for you guys. If you are interested, feel free to check that out. For those who want to kind of talk about it, explain through it, I'm gonna do that as well. We're gonna talk about all that in a little bit. And then those who want like a flow chart to kind of see, they want like that visual about the words that's in Cooper, I'm going to recreate that credit Cooper and also have that available as well. So the very like sciencey part of verbal behavior comes down to the point-to-point -point correspondence and the formal similarity between these different responses. Because you have to figure out and break down, is that speaker listener relationship, is that a man, is that a tech? Because you have to look at that form and that function. 
So that would be the MO, the SDs, how does it look? What's the delivery method? Are they the same? You know, are they both vocal? Are they both sign? Are they not? How are they responding? We're gonna break all that down, how that looks. Before we get into that, we're gonna get into the elementary verbal operands. Okay, so for the elementary verbal operands, I've got a list for you and I've got a little silly way to remember it. It's super embarrassing, honestly, but hey, we all have our things that work for us. So the elementary verbal operands are manned, interverbal, tact, codic, and duplic. I remember that based on my little acronym or like saying I have in my head, which is my teen CD. So M I T C D. I'll put it on the screen, but it's just a little acronym that I took from manned, interverbal, tact, coded, duplic. Easy way to remember. If you can come up with something else that helps you remember it better, go for it. Those verbal elementary operands are the expressive ones. So we have those five as the expressive verbal elementary operands. And then we have the receptive, which is listener discriminations. So listener discrimination is part of verbal behavior because if I tell you to do something and say, hey, you know, pick that up and you pick it up, that's a listener discrimination that you just did. And you responded to my verbal behavior. So it was all connected in those verbal operands. And those are kind of classified under the elementary. So we've got our elementary verbal operands on the left. We got like the receptives and we got our expressives and then we've got the ones we talked about. Okay. Day two for me of filming this because life's busy and I really want to spend time on making sure this is a good quality for you. So I'm taking my sweet time and broke this up over two days of filming to have the time to go through it all. Okay, we talked about kind of the basic terminology and concepts you need to know for verbal behavior. Another quick one I want to squeeze in there from my notes I have from when I was studying, I was reviewing them. Remember that non-verbal and non-vocal technically are not interchangeable. Nonverbal is saying that somebody has no verbal behavior, which isn't true. It's very much a term that we've overgeneralized. Nonvocal, however, means that somebody doesn't have words that come out of their mouth and they're making noise for communication purposes. That's nonvocal. So technically, if we have, you know, a kid that we're working with that doesn't speak, but they use icons, they're not nonverbal, they're nonvocal, technically. So I don't know if that's something I'm saying or anything, but I did just want to say that. So I know that in my notes, so that's always a good thing to remember. Our kids are non-vocal, not non-verbal, typically. This is where we are going to start talking about the, this is where we start talking about the operands. We're going to go through and talk about what they are, how to discriminate them based on Skinner and verbal behavior. And you're going to be thinking, I've got this. And then it's going to get harder and harder. It's going to be really great. It's going to be fun, guys. Next podcast is when we're going to go through and really apply these two examples and talk about them and have you know more of that trial and error of figuring out and working through this information. I want you guys to have all of these concepts and terms to work through over the next week or you know if you're studying in the future or if you're feeling confident after this podcast, if we go into the next one, if you're feeling great, then you've got broken behavior down. So we're going to go into these now and work through more next week. Ready? Like I said, your discrimination skills are going to be really important here. So you're really going to have to pay attention. A note I want to make is that no assumptions are allowed here. Skinner is not an assumption man. He's very serious and very to the point in particular when he talks about this. 
So we cannot assume, oh, because it's not in this category, it must fall into this one. None of that. It's got to fit these criteria specifically, perfectly, exact in order to be classified as a verbal operant. No assuming. All right, our first one is man. We all know what a man is. We're all pretty familiar with them. We've been in the field for a second. You know what a man is. A man is evoked and controlled by Emma. We've got to have motivation behind a man in order for it to be a man. That's really important. If you're looking at these test questions and this one of the verbal operants doesn't have MO, there's no motivation, that's not a man. It has to have motivation. So, man evoked by motivation, reinforced by the thing that the person was asking for, the correct response, the problem being solved, whatever it is. We're gonna get way more into man's and all the complexities of man's next week. But just know, man evoked by MO, reinforced with the thing that the person was asking for, which means that they should man for that thing with a higher frequency in the future because it's been reinforced. Yourself can reinforce the man. Remember, we can act as the speaker and the listener. So the speaker is making the man, the listener is going to reinforce. And you remember how we talked about that audience, all that's applying, right? All this time together, use what you know. That's what you know about it. We have our man that's getting reinforced by that listener. It could be yourself. So if you're like, man, I really wish I had some food and then you order food and you have food show up at your door. That's going to be reinforcing your man. It was evoked by ML. You're good to go. Man. Cool. And then the next one is tact. So again, we're probably all very familiar with tact, but there's some very important key things here that the field really has kind of overgeneralized or forgotten about the true essential tact. It's evoked by a nonverbal stimulus. What that means is if we see something, we tact it, that's a tact. You're going to get reinforced by generalized reinforcement. So let's put that in an example real quick. So I am driving, I see a cow, I say, cow, or look cows. That's going to be a tact. Everybody might look and say, oh, cool, cow. And I'm reinforced by that attention, or I'm reinforced by, I say, Mom, that's a cookie, and she's like, wow, you're so smart, and like choosing that social price. Remember, generalized condition reinforcers are important here. It's going to depend on the situation, the person, what kind of reinforcement they're looking for, what their needs are in that moment. If it's, you know, if I say cow, and the mom goes out and grabs me that cow from the field and carries it to me and gives me that cow, and I'm so excited and I hug that cow, then that would, that would make it a man because I wanted that cow, and now I have the cow, and I'm reinforced to ask my mom for that cow in the future, right? Whereas as a tact, if I'm like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that cow. I'm just labeling the cow. Or same thing for a cookie. If, you know, I say cookie, and my mom goes to buy me that cookie at the bakery, and I'm like, no, I, I don't want that, or no, thank you, or I just don't eat it, or I walk away. That's a tact, right? Labeling, nonverbal. So you might be wondering, you know, how everybody in the field all the time uses, what is this? What is this? What's that? That's not true tact. No, there's a term that Skinner has that we'll get to next week about this. Just know for your exam, that's not a tact. That's an interverbal because a true tact does not have a SD prompting it. It's a nonverbal stimulus reinforced by generalized condition reinforcement. Keep that in mind. So when you're trying to make sure you understand these operants for man and tact, make sure you can discriminate those two because those two are very similar until you start breaking it down, those three different components and really understanding 
and discriminating those two. So once you got those two, make sure you feel solid and comfortable on those, and then we're gonna move on to the next ones because it gets harder from here. I know, girly. For this next verbal appearance, we're gonna be looking very closely at that speaker, listener, verbal behavior episodes and looking at exactly what happens and how it happens, how the speaker, how the listener responds is going to really determine which category this falls into. And this is where we're gonna bring in point-to-point -point correspondence and formal similarity. So just know, man and chat do not have anything to do with point-to-point -point informal. Once you ruled out that the answer could be one of those two, that's when you're going to move on. But if it's one of those two, do not bring formal similarity, point-to-point -point correspondence into this. It, they, they aren't relevant. This is where it becomes relevant with interverbals, codics, and duplets. We're going to talk about what all those are, so don't stress. But first, we're going to talk about point-to-point -point correspondences and formal similarity. Okay. Point-to-point -point correspondence, I'm just going to read off my notes here because I don't want to mess it up. Point-to-point -point correspondence are parts of the verbal stimulus corresponding to the parts of the verbal response, but do not physically match the speaker's verbal behavior beginning, middle, and end. Must match the listener's beginning, middle, and end of their verbal behavior. Okay. What that is saying is... If I say cookie, you say cookie, that is point-to-point correspondence because my beginning of my word, middle of the word, and end of the word have all matched. If I sign like this and do, I believe this is dad, you have to do the exact same thing and that would have to match beginning, middle, and end in order for it to be point-to-point -point correspondence. Now keep in mind, we are working with populations that are typically not going to get these responses correct every single time. When we're talking about on the exam and we're talking about true point-to-point -point correspondence, it has to match. So if I say cookie and say cook, that's not point-to-point -point correspondence because it didn't match the beginning of the word, the middle of the word, and the end of the word. Or if it's a sentence beginning, middle, and end of the sentence, it's all going to match perfectly. So for that kid that said cook, that technically isn't, but obviously when we're teaching these skills, our goal is for that to be in a color, for example, it still counts as a color, but for the exam, it does not. That's what I talked about in the very beginning. We're breaking these two concepts up of what's correct on the exam and what's on real life because it can be really confusing. You're like, but I've always counted as a code. Why is that not a code now? Understand that those are just a little bit different when we're talking the very sciencey, serious part of our behavior versus the actual in the field applications. Formal similarity, you ready? This one's a little complicated, but if you can understand it, all the power to you. Formal similarity. When the controlling verbal stimulus and the response product are in the same sense mode, both auditory or written, and the stimulus and the response produced resembles each other in physical sense of resemblance. The definition, so, you know, good luck on that one. So, if the verbal behavior is perceived in the same way by the speaker, listener, like if you were watching it happen between the speaker and the listener, and you're perceived in the same way, so your senses or your eyes touch if it's both in braille or if you're both you're watching it for a sign or you can hear it come from both persons that is formal similarity and the physical form of it has to match so if it's coming out of my mouth and my mouth our mouths are both the same so if we're both doing ASL you know our physical topography is going to be the same similar it doesn't have to be identical so if you know if I 
who might, you know, though if I'm doing the sign slightly over a little, that's still a form of similarity. It has to be very similar in that form, the topography. You know, you get it. So like if I sign cookie and you sign cracker, that's not formal similarity. That's not formal similarity because the physical forms didn't match. So, you know, let's say cookie was this and cracker was that, those are gonna look different, right? But I say house and you say house, that's formal similarity because our topography is going to be the same. It's both the same sense mode. We both can hear auditory. So we have those two components that's remember for formal similarity. We use point-to-point -point correspondence and formal similarity to really understand the difference between intervertible, duplex, and codex. And I'll talk about what duplex and codex are in a second. Let's go ahead and get intervertible out of the way because that's kind of the next step of this verbal operant chain that you're going to go through when you're looking at these verbal operant questions for the exam. You're like, okay, is it manned or tacked? Can we look up these different things? Is it Verbal, all right, nope, let me look between duplex and codec, all right, which one is it? You're gonna do the kind of like trickle down effect. Cooper has a good flow chart like we talked about earlier to check out, but yeah, you have to kind of figure out what works for you, what's your best way to discriminate and go through these terms. I'm a visual person, so for me, I picture it as like a little flow chart that I trickle down. Yeah, that's figure out what works out for you. Keep in mind, all these are evoked by verbal stimulus, so if somebody is saying something or has some sort of verbal behavior to indicate the verbal behavior, Interverbal does not have MO. Interverbal, for example, has no point-to-point -point correspondence, right? So we know that if I say, hey, how's your day going? You're not gonna answer with, hey, how's your day going? Because that's not an interverbal, right? That's not point-to-point -point correspondence, that would be in a coic, right? So for interverbal, I'm gonna say, hey, how's your day going? And you're gonna say, it's going great because I'm learning about verbal behavior. There's no point-to-point -point correspondence because my beginning, middle, and end did not match the speaker and listener. Those were not identical. So it's an interverbal. And then you can understand that interverbal is the only one that doesn't have point-to-point -point correspondence in these. So if it doesn't have point-to-point -point correspondence, it's an interverbal. The rest do. And that's where we're going to bring in formal similarity into this. Well, so that trickle-down effect, right? So let's recap for codec and du duplic. So for interverbal, we have no point-to-point correspondence. We'll move on to coding. So here we're working through that triple effect. You figure out is there MO, is there verbal SD, no MO. There is a verbal SD, so interverbal I've gone to. All right, for interverbal, is there point-to-point correspondence? Did the beginning, middle, and match? No, all right, it's interverbal. If it did, this where I'm going to codec and duplicate. So if the beginning, middle, and end all match the speaker and the listener, and the way we are perceiving the response is the same. So I can hear both the responses in this example, and they have similar topography, so that formal similarity. These fall under the duplic category. Duplics are coics, imitation, and copying text. Those are just have memorized through fluency, or maybe if you come up with a fun way to say them, some people remember it by duplicating for a coic or duplicating the response that worked for you. But yes, duplicates are a coex, imitation, and copying text. You might be like wondering, how is imitation in there? That's a whole different skill. But remember, imitation is verbal behavior because I'm telling you to do something and you are copying me. Or for like listener discrimination with that receptive skill, you're doing what I say. You guys know what a coic is, you guys know what imitation is. And then copying text is going to be exactly what it sounds like. So if I wrote the word cat, you would write the word cat. You're literally copying the text exactly like it's written. So when we look at this, does me writing cat have point-to-point correspondence? Yes. Let's assume in this situation it does because I wrote the C, I wrote the A, I wrote the T, just like you wrote the C, the A, the T. 
24 can find this beginning, middle, and match. Performal similarity is a delivery method the same, so our perceptions or our sensory mode the same. Are they both written? Great copying text. This imitation. If I'm saying do this and you imitate me, we are copying each other. So for codec, what is codec? Codec, this is where it gets different. So codecs are, we're going to move into codec, and codec is where it gets a little bit different. So codecs is taking dictation and textual. So codecs have point-to-point correspondence. So we know duplex and codecs have point-to-point correspondence, right? Because beginning, middle, and end is going to be the same. That's taking dictation. Taking dictation is me giving you directions or me telling you something and you writing it down as I tell you. So I remember this one by taking directions, taking dictations, and writing it down so I don't forget. I have like the little chain there. So we're taking dictation, I'm writing it down. That is going to be point-to-point -point correspondence because I'm writing exactly what you're telling me. However, formal similarity is not there. Think about it. The auditory or the processing, the sense mode, it's different because you're telling me, you're talking to me, and I'm writing something down. So I have to see with my eyes in order to see that verbal behavior from that other person. So it's different. Auditory directions, you're writing different sense modes. So formal similarities, not there. And plus the topography is different because one's writing and one's talking. Perfect. And then for textual, textual is seeing something like on the board or seeing a sign and saying it to yourself. So if I saw like an open sign outside like a restaurant said open, that's textual. And then keep in mind that textual is evoked by a verbal stimulus that's written. So keep in mind, that's all verbal behavior. And that's where it gets really confusing and really difficult, but textual. I see the sign that says open and I say open. Let's see, I'm going to put correspondence because the beginning, middle, and ends are the same, but not form of similarity because it's written words and mine is an auditory sound that I'm making versus our eyes are seeing something. If it was braille, like I was saying something and then somebody was, you know, touching in braille in order to read, that would be form of similarity because those auditory processes are different. I think you guys got it. It's harder once you try to go through all of these, but if I made it easy for you, then I'm gonna pat myself on the back. If not, then I'm sorry, I'm trying. <laughs> we are gonna stop there. We are going to digest all these terms. If you need to, I would recommend just going back and listening through this again and really making sure you understand these terms because if you don't get this foundation, you're not gonna get the rest of verbal behavior because there's like another hour of this I can talk about with all the exceptions and the rules and the you know, the true tax and the impure ones and all of this stuff. There's a lot more to this. So make sure you feel good and confident with that. I'm going to have like a good example sheet uploaded on my Patreon as well that you can go through if you would like.